So Money episode 905, Ask Farnoosh with special co-host Anne Rochelle. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everybody. Friday, June 28th, heading into the, I don't know, quasi-July 4th weekend. July 4th is next Thursday, but I know a lot of people are taking off this following week. If you are one of those lucky people, I hope you're headed for a nice break, some nice R&R. Hope you have good weather wherever you're going. And uh So what's going on? So this week was a pretty cool week. We had Krista Williams on the show on Wednesday. Actually, Krista Williams and her co-host of the very, very successful, popular podcast, Almost 30. So I discovered this podcast when I was out in LA promoting Stacks House. This is an LA-based podcast. These two women who are in the millennial cohort, their podcast is called Almost 30. So you can still listen to it if you're 45 or 100, but I think it's really relevant for those of us who are in that kind of psychographic maybe of just trying to get our SHIT together and figuring out life and work and relationships and self-care and all the things. I learned about them when I was out there because I was just learning more about all the movers and shakers out in Los Angeles. And these two women, so gracious to come on the So Money podcast uh, to talk about their start. You know, they're just, they were just two friends who wanted to talk about things and they hit record. And three years later, 12 million downloads, just a huge following of devoted fans and just talking about how they built that podcast into a platform and a brand and a company. You know, it was a side hustle at first, just a passion at first, no money. And then how they turned it into a pretty successful business was very inspiring. And so check out episode 903 on Wednesday if you haven't. Now, today we have a lot of great questions from listeners about, you know, resources for learning about your finances and so much more. And our co-host, I'm really, so it's a special day on So Money because the co-host that I have with me today, Anne Rochelle, she and I are actually from the same hometown, coincidentally. We're both from Shrewsbury, Massachusetts. You know, I bounced around a lot growing up. My parents moved, but I spent a good chunk of my childhood in Shrewsbury, Massachusetts from about age 11 to 14, formative years, I'd say. And she and I, uh, although not the same age, but we did both go to the same high school and middle school. So excited to connect with a listener who shares those roots with me. And welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Farnoosh. Now, you're no longer in Massachusetts. You've moved entirely to the opposite side of the country, to Portland, Oregon. Don't blame you. Portland's <laughs> gorgeous and yeah. so full of culture and life in Portland. What what moved, made you do the move? Yeah. Um, and what are you up to these days? Yeah, I, I moved here three years ago. Um, my fiance is from Portland, Oregon. So that's why I moved out here. Ah. And so I understand you work for a startup, a startup company that's developing a diagnostic device for malaria and sickle cell disease. Do you have a background in biomedicine? Yeah, I have a PhD in biomedical engineering. In high school, I loved biology and I loved math. So I really wanted to go into engineering um, and with a bent towards uh, 
medical devices or pharmaceuticals. So um, I got an undergrad degree in chemical engineering, and then I really loved research. So I went on and got a PhD. Mm, wow. All that schooling. <laughs> and then now you're in the real world working. And I understand that you've become a lot more interested in personal finance because of this sort of catch up that you've had to play now mm-hmm. with retirement savings. So tell me a little bit about how you're learning, what you're curious about, what are your goals? When I finished um, graduate school, which was in 2015, I I had this sort of moment where I realized, like, wait a minute, all the people I went to college with have been out in the real world with 401ks for five years. And I just sort of had this light bulb moment that got me really interested in saving more and learning more about personal finance because mm-hmm. I, mean, I was good at budgeting in grad school. I lived off of a stipend. Uh, so, so that was fine. But uh, when I got out of school, I really felt compelled to focus on this part of my life a little bit more. Um, So I've just spent the last, it's been four years now, um, but specifically the last two, really diving into personal finance and just gaining control of my finances and understanding what's going on in that, in that part of my life. (laughs) So, uh, so right now my goals include, uh, you know, I'm maxing out my Roth IRA every year. Um, I now have a retirement plan at work, which is great. Um, and hopefully we'll be buying a house in the next few years. So mm. that's also on my radar. You know, I find that my engineer friends are very diligent when it comes to money. I don't know if that's <laughs> just because you all are just so, like, I don't know, like organized and scientific and money just comes. Do you feel like money just now that you're in, in it, do you yeah. feel like it's it's it does feel very, very you in some ways? Yes. I mean, I definitely I, yeah, I love spreadsheets. I love detail. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it I've. I mean, ever since I graduated from college, all throughout uh, being in graduate school, I always kept a line a, a a line by line spreadsheet of every single dollar I spent. So, oh my gosh, oh I wow, was in that regard, I was in pretty good shape when I got out of school. I knew what I spent on things. Um, it was just sort of the broader picture that I needed to fill in. But mm-hmm. but yeah, I definitely. I definitely enjoy personal finance a lot now. <laughs> I never thought I would. <laughs> so, Well, I'm happy that you are finding good advice through this podcast. It's hopefully helping you, at least, Absolutely. you know, all the inspiring stories. And now, of Absolutely. course, we've got questions from listeners. I didn't know you were such a spreadsheet person. Um, <laughs> I think you're going to be very helpful as we go through these questions. And <laughs> the first one is from Trish on Instagram. And I think you might have, I have some resources for her. You probably do too, but she wants to know, do we have any recommendations for books for a young woman who is almost 20 that provides personal finance advice and can give her some beginner's ropes to becoming financially responsible? Firstly, just want to say, Trish, kudos to you for if you are that almost 20 person, (laughs) sounds like you are, you're not asking for a friend, super commendable. I wasn't thinking about reading a personal finance book certainly not in my early 20s, let alone before I even reached 20. So kudos to you. I mean, I think that we've had a lot of guests on this show, and I'm sure, Anne, you've um, you know, listened to them as mm-hmm. women authors who have written about personal finance. The ones that come quickly to mind are Erin um, Lowry, who's the author of the Broke Millennial series of books. So she's got the Broke Millennial blog, which then was the impetus for the Broke Millennial book. 
And now she has a second book in the series that she's developing that is solely on investing. I I think that's pretty cool. I think I would start there. There's been a lot of books published in the last four or five years. There's been kind of a a boom in personal finance literature. I wrote one uh, 10 years ago called You're So Money, which I like to think is still relevant, depending on, I don't know, the voice that you like to read about. Like there's all sorts of different kinds of personalities out there giving advice. So Erin's definitely one. I have a friend also who's been on this podcast, Ramit Sethi, who just reissued his book, that he wrote about 10 years ago called I Will Teach You to Be Rich. And I I think, you know, Anne, she's under 20, but I think mm-hmm. that and although some of these books are written more for people who are like young professionals or out of college people, still still relevant, right? I completely agree. And I totally second your recommendation for Broke Millennial. That was the first one that popped into my head too. It just covers the fundamentals in a very clear way. And I, I really enjoyed that book. And what I like about these particular books and authors is that their advice doesn't stop at the book, that they've got communities elsewhere. They've got Instagram Mm -hmm. following. They have courses. I know Ramit has a number of courses. And so if you're looking for an extended education or just, you know, more, 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 I think those are great um, places to start. And I mean, I think just start listening to this podcast more because we've had so many authors on this show from Gene Chatsky, David Box, Susie Orman. I mean, these are some of the original gangsters <laughs> in mm-hmm. personal finance. I haven't had Dave Ramsey on, but I've had his daughter on and she's also written a number of books about personal finance. So you really can't go wrong. And I would say you got to probably read a bunch of books before you find the, again, that authorial voice that you connect with the most. Because at the end of the day, the advice that we all give isn't different. I mean, we're all saying spend less than you earn, (laughs) invest in your 401k, start that Roth IRA. But it's sort of the how we tell that story or how we give that advice, who we are as individuals that you might connect with me more than you might connect with others or vice versa. So that's kind of the beauty of the industry is that there's a lot to pick and choose from, a lot of people to pick and choose from. And the fact that she's starting so young, really getting a head start. And uh, if you have any other questions, we're here for you, Trish. Okay. Shannon on Instagram wants to know how to take her business to the next level. I love this question. She is looking for a small, a very small business coach, but good business coach that can help her in this startup phase. Someone who could be a coach or a mentor, any feedback we have for her. Do you have any experience with starting a business or a friend's family that started businesses, Anne? I would say my my the experience I have right now that would be kind of relevant to this is that I work in a bioscience incubator. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of what I was thinking with this question was there's a lot of resources and mentors at the the bioscience incubator that I work at and I mean I don't know what um what industry her business is in but that could be an interesting place to get a community and get support would yes. be an incubator if there's one locally that is available to you. That's a great idea. And, um, you know, some of the larger banks have incubators. Mm-hmm. Some um, companies run contests, pitch contests. So you pitch your idea and you might get a little bit of money plus resources. That's the idea behind the incubator. The, the company might take a, a 
stake in your business, a small stake in exchange for the offerings that they're giving you. But you can just do a whole Google search and maybe go down a bit of a rabbit hole. But I think that if you start locally and look at your state or, and, and town for incubator, startup, incubator, small business incubator. Also look for female-led specific opportunities like female-led businesses sometimes are privy to to unique scholarships, grants, uh, support. So don't uh, discount that you are a female business owner and that could also be your advantage when it comes to getting some of these sort of mentorship programs. But I think also one thing that we can all take advantage of if you're, whether you're at the startup phase or the middle of the road phase, advanced level score is a nationwide um resource for small business owners, go to score.org. And these are uh, basically brick and mortar outfits all over the country that have small business coaches there to help you with your business plan, your marketing plan, strategize, your financial model, all the things. And to my knowledge, it's free. So might be worth checking that out. I'm not really sure where she lives, but score is pretty uh, spread out. They're in, I think, every state. So I would check out their website. And they have a lot of free resources online. And speaking of free resources, I mean, it sounds like she, her budget's pretty slim. So that's why I'm sticking to some free resources here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, the SBA has a lot of free um, information, tutorials, videos on their website too, the Small Business Administration. There you could also learn about some of the grants, um, some of the small business loans maybe that you could be uh, – uh, that you might want to fill out, might want to access, that could then help to afford you a, a coach, a mentor that uh, that you're looking for. So good luck, Shannon. And thank you, Anne, for that tip. I think incubators is a great place to start. Okay, sticking with Instagram. Are you following me on Instagram, Anne? Just to put you oh, on the spot I, here. <laughs> I have I have been to your Instagram. I have a pretty low-key uh, internet uh, presence. <laughs> I don't That's know commendable. Really- I think that's that's totally cool, and um, you should do a blog post about how you manage to do that. <laughs> I mean, truly, I've read so many articles now about like I deplugged from my phone for you know forty eight hours. I feel like I had a brain transplant, you know, uh, in a good way. So Niha on Instagram had a question uh, about. Well, here's the here's here's the setup for the question. Niha says, "I'm working at a place that has not discussed my raise for six months now. I've reminded them about it, but they failed to take action. What should I do? I feel like I'm not being taken seriously, and I feel like I should find another place for me. This is frustrating. Is. I'm gonna. I have a lot of advice on this, but I want to hear you out, Anne. First, do you have any experience asking for a raise or any like just instant gut reactions to this? Yes. The the first things that come to mind were, um, A, is there some sort of paper trail that you have um, for this history of asking for a raise? And also, um, can you find an ally at your workplace, like somebody in human resources? I just feel like there need to be other people brought into this conversation that aren't, that aren't there yet um, because you're not, you're not having success with the current folks that are in this conversation. Um, so those are the two first things that come to mind with this question, but this this is tough. I do. It's a little tough. I wouldn't give up yet. You know, I wouldn't throw no. in the towel. I think that raises take time sometimes. But to your mm-hmm. point, and maybe you're not 
talking to the right people. But also keep in mind that when you talk to, say, your immediate boss about a raise, your boss then has to go and get probably another level of approval uh, often. It's not like the buck stops with your boss. There's usually a bigger budget that is managed by his or her boss. So more than reminding them about it, I think it's important to go back with a a way to make this ask that you have for this raise very easy for them to execute, right? So asking them for concrete first, like, you know, if this raise is not available now, what do I need to do in the next month or two months to make it more viable, get their feedback. If they're just stalling and they're saying like, we're working on it, like don't, you know, keep, we'll let you know, like they're not saying no, but they're saying, you know, sometimes they just drag your feet a little bit. Um, You can go back with some high level bullets of why you're worth this raise and just, okay, great. So just as a reminder, because then keeping in mind that they're probably going to have to take this information to somebody else to get approval. So in this email, if they say, if you want to respond with, Hey, great. Thank you for working on my behalf to see that I, to, to try to get me this uh, pay bump. Just as a reminder, here are some high level bullets as far as some of the, the, uh, the contributions that I've made in the past six months, in the past year. For example, you know, I, whatever, ABC. And like, you know, I think that it, it, when you're thinking about what to, bring up is what your value add is. It's really about value. It's really about numbers. Like what have you done to help the company be more profitable, frankly, or more attractive or more competitive? Is it that you brought in some really great uh, team members? Is it that you helped train some people? Is it that you helped to create a product or a service that is now a revenue stream for the company? Did you put together a you know, a manual of some sort or a deck that is now being used to get money, to sell products, to sell services. Like really get granular thinking about your role and how you are specifically contributing to the company's growth and and bottom line. And these are maybe the four to five things you bring in that email as a way to help them advocate for you on your behalf. Now, Anne, do you think that there is a cutoff period. Like I definitely had gotten the runaround from one of my managers in one of my first jobs. I think I asked for a raise two or three times within a year and kept getting either a not right now or maybe later next quarter. And so I just started looking elsewhere after a year because I just got the, I got the hint more or less. Um, So is there a kind of a point where you think that Neha should Take a take a hint and start looking elsewhere. I don't think it's any, ever too late to start circulating your resume. First of all, agreed. Yeah, you know, piece of advice I once got from a internship. Um, uh, my boss at an internship was like, "You should always." And this was back in the '90s, so she's like, "You should always be faxing out your resume." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In this, it, you know, fast forward to now, it's like you should always be updating your LinkedIn. Because you just never know. Um, you might be happy at your job, but you don't know what's out there. Maybe something else will make you happier. I think that it is not premature to start looking elsewhere, but don't give up You know the good fight at your job currently. If you like this job, you do see a future, and really what would just make you happier is making more money, I think it's worth um, saying your piece. And I said this on a previous podcast, I think it was last Friday. I'll give you one quick anecdote. My brother... Oh my gosh, he's so bold. He's in his late twenties. He made a uh, he got a pay bump 
uh, which was not looking f- possible for a while. He was like, I don't know. They keep going, coming back to me with, I need more time. I need more time. And finally, like in his second converse, second or third conversation with his boss, my brother Todd said to his boss, you know, it's really important for me to make this, this amount. This is what I believe I'm worth. I've proven this to you. I think you know I'm worth this. I just don't want this to become a distraction mm. to me on this job. And wow. I mean, <laughs> it's true, right? Because it's all you're going to think about. You're going to yeah. grow resentful. So that is uh, a pretty bold statement. And so I don't know, depending on your relation, he was pretty, he had a pretty good relationship with his boss. They were pretty close and, you know, honest with one another. So he felt like he was in a safe place to say something like that and not take, have, not have the other person to be offended or take it the wrong way. But it is true. You know, if you're somebody who really has been working their tail off and it wasn't like he was asking for a hundred thousand more dollars, he was asking for 10,000 more dollars for the year. And this was like, just all the back and forth. He's like, really, if I leave, you're going to have to spend so much more money trying to rehire someone, reacclimate them, train them, all the things. Exactly. So, you know, I think that you just have to kind of sometimes put yourself in your employer's shoe. What do they need to make this a home run for you? Uh, Give them some talking points, give them those value adds and, and, you know, be very honest with them. Don't say you're applying to 50 other jobs, but maybe just be very frank about why this is important to you. And and I've read st- studies where sometimes, especially with women who ask for raises, because for women, I feel it's like we're damned if we ask if we're, and we're damned if we don't. There's just studies that show that even with the same script, we uh, when a woman asks for more money, it's perceived more negatively than when a man asks for more money. It's a lot of crap. But I think that one way to gracefully navigate a negotiation, whether you're a man or a woman, is to also not make it just about you, right? You're, you making more is a win for everybody because it's going to make you more, um, oh, what's the word? Just feeling like more valued, frankly, at the company and more therefore willing to go the extra 10 miles in every step of the way. So you making more, it has a domino effect. Your team does better, your performance pr- improves. You know, there's going to be an ROI, basically. All right. Can you tell I love talking about how to make more money? <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I love it. Um, but by the way, when are you asking for a raise at your job, Anne? Oh, that's a good question. Um, do you feel Do you feel well compensated? I do. I do. Yes. You're not just saying that because your boss is listening probably to this. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. Good. Good. All right. Moving on. Claudia, she writes in and she says, I'm a 33-year-old single woman living the dream life in Madrid. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> that mm-hmm. sounds pretty dreamy. I have a stable <laughs> job, which I love, and some side hustles to bank in for my money goals. My biggest money goal is to have two homes, one in the mountain range near Madrid and another in the city center. I don't have any debts or mortgages, and I'm saving for retirement. I'm ready for my first home purchased. purchase. Question is, what should I do first? Should I get my dream home first, one of my dream homes first? I now rent and share an apartment with a friend, and I'm happy with this arrangement, but it's 26% of my income. Hmm. Should I buy something close by, become a landlord? Um, 
so long story, long question short, I think she's looking for some real estate advice, some housing advice. And firstly, I would say that this rental situation is a big chunk of her income. 26%, you know, it's not in the red zone yet, but I think that we often say, you know, if you can keep your housing costs to no more than 30% of your income, you know, that's that's a good benchmark and you don't want to hit that. But 26 is getting pretty close. And, you know, she's saving, which is great, but I, I wonder if she can find a more financially amenable situation. I'm not saying, you know, rent is money down the drain. Certainly not. It's helped, it's it's afforded her the ability to do a lot of things be flexible, have a, a transient lifestyle. But if she is interested in home ownership, first thing I might do, and, and you can tell me if you agree or not, is to kind of figure out what kind of budget do you want to set aside for this first home purchase? How much of your take-home pay do you want to dedicate to this property that either you're going to live in or you're going to rent out and hopefully cash out? cash flow positive. I mean, I would start with your home. Like if you're talking chronologically, start with the home that you're going to live in. And then from there, look at a second home that can be more of an investment property that you can rent out. And in that case, it's, you know, really about making sure that it's purchased in a location that would have renters. Your mortgage is less than the, um, the the cost that you're charging for someone to rent it. So I would start with your your primary home and I would try to say look for something that won't be more than 20% of your take home pay. What do you pay out in Portland? What's like the breakdown in, with housing out there, Anne? Housing's it, it is going up a bit. Um it's it, Portland's kind of booming, so a lot of people are moving here and it's definitely something that a lot of people are talking about is the rising that rising house prices and the rising rent. She sounds like she has a lot of real estate ambitions. You know, she wants to yeah. have her couple houses, one that she could live in, one that she rents out. I feel like you want to get settled first. Yeah, I guess I I didn't read in this question that Claudia necessarily wants to be a landlord. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think that would be kind of one of the first things to think about too is, is do you want to be a landlord? Is that important to you? I mean, I definitely... She's she's saying very clearly she would like these two homes, the one in the city and then the one in the mountain range, um, which sounds wonderful, by the way. Um, but I, I kind of read that this rental that she's in now, she's happy with. So in some respects, maybe why would you change that if it's, if it's kind of going well for you right now? Uh, so in that regard, maybe the mountain range home makes more sense since you do have this nice arrangement in the city that you're living with a friend. That sounds pretty great. But it's not long-term. Like, I don't know if she's going to plan to live with this friend forever. I also Hmm. wonder, I also wonder, I mean, she seems like she's saving for retirement and all the things, but Mm -hmm. I, I, I just don't know enough about Spain to know. I know in America often, well, not depending again on where you live, I'd say um, in New York City, having a mortgage can sometimes be more affordable on a monthly basis than rent as far as the same, like, you know, same space, more or less. So buying can in the long run be a cost saver in some cases. So I guess I would just want to know what we're comparing this to. If she bought something in the city and then had that rental in the mountain place, 
just, you know, you got to just do the numbers, I guess. Sorry, yeah. we can't give you more specific, but I, you just have to sit with the numbers yeah. for a while. You know, it is about what you want, but then you also have to just do the spreadsheet as my friend Aaron does. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but Claudia, let us know if you're leaning, if like if you do make steps towards one or the other and you kind of hit like a cross path, um, crossroads rather, let us know if we can help you further. Our last question is from Krista and she's so sweet. She says, I've been devouring your archives <laughs> as I try to pull my financial life together. Well, we have a lot of them. We're on episode 900 and I don't know, what is this? What did I say? 905. So good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> um, and she says, I love your work. Thank you so much, Krista. So here's her situation. She says, I'm 36, married. I have a two-year-old with no plans to have more children. I own a home. I've been a teacher for over 10 years, which means I'm one of those rare unicorns with a pension that I invested into. I have no intention of leaving teaching, which means I will retire in my mid-50s with a comfortable income of over $80,000 a year. I'll have health insurance and my house will be paid off. Sounds like there are no problems here, but let's keep reading. A few years ago, Krista says, I started contributing an additional 5% to a state-sponsored deferred compensation plan of 457. A lot of us in the audience probably know what that is or have them at our employer uh, at our place of employment. And she's amassed an additional $12,000 in retirement savings through that. Uh, she doesn't hear a ton of advice for pensioners, as we are increasingly rare, that is true. So looking for some insights. Okay, so here's where she gets into the question. Money is tight in my house. So much of my earnings are tied up in our health insurance and my pension, but I do have a little wiggle room with leftover cash each month. What do you think is the smarter move? Up my contributions to the 457 or open a robo-investing account through Betterment or one of their competitors? We have a decent emergency fund between the two of us also. Okay, so that was going to be my first thought is, do you have that emergency cushion, six to nine months, maybe a little bit longer? You have a two-year-old, so you really don't want to skimp on that emergency account. So it sounds like they're good on that. Um, and so the question is, with the little extra that they've got, what's smarter? Up the contributions to the 457 or open a robo-investing account? So Here's the thing, upping your contributions to your 457, like a 401k, I believe that can reduce your taxable income. So there is that kind of tax savings benefit of, of vehicles like a 401k, a 457, these retirement plans that are often sponsored by our employers. So, you know, to the extent that that is something that's still available to you because I also know that there's a limit to how much you can tax deduct every year. Maybe you want to max out the 457 uh, before you move on to something like a brokerage account, which she mentioned, you know, thinking about um, an online account through one of those robo-advisors. There's so many of them, Wealthfront, Betterment, Elevest, Schwab has a, a the intelligent portfolio. I, I personally, my kind of um, protocol, Krista, is to max out these deferred compensations, these like these 401ks. I have a SEP IRA because I don't work for an employer, but I have what is like a 401k for me. 
I max that out every year. And then I additionally then invest in a brokerage account. Different tax implications there, right? So when you withdraw from that account at any time, it's not restricted, you do have to be mindful that you might be exposed to capital gains tax. Um, which, you know, you're still going to get taxed on that 457 when you withdraw it. So it's just one of those things where I think where the brokerage account could offer you a little bit more cash flow flexibility. You're not going to get penalized for taking out that money. Uh, but when you do, you'll have to pay a tax. I would just, that's just what I do. I do the, I, I max out the, um, the, I would max out the 457 to get that tax savings. And then I would, do a brokerage account. And I'm not really, I'm not saying Betterment's better than Wealthfront, LS. You kind of have to just do an apples to apples comparison. The one thing I would really zone in on is the fee. And they're all pretty nominal at this point. That's what they're competing on is their, is their, is their fee, which is traditionally less than working with a financial planner. Uh, but I'm going to pause and, and have you chime in because I know that this is an area that you're really passionate about, retirement, investing. What would be your advice for Krista? I I totally agree with you, Farnoosh. I I would probably go with the maxing out the 457. Uh, I think that makes I think that makes sense. And I don't know if she's got a match there, you know, too. Sometimes no. these plans come with a match. So I think maxing out the 457 to get the potential match, to get the tax savings. If you've done the 19,000 and now you're looking for another place to invest, might be the brokerage account. And you know, I think that to hearing her talk about how money is tight, you know, tying up all your money in these retirement vehicles, on the one hand, you know, there's advantages to that, but if you do need to, you know, access this money and you don't want to be penalized for it, I would say have some money in a brokerage account just in case. Um, this isn't money that you want to necessarily access in the next year. If it were, you wouldn't want to put it in, in an investment account. You'd want to just save it. But if it's something that you know, like likelihood of you tapping that in the, in the next five years is very low, then yeah, I think putting it in the market is fine. But just in the off chance that you do want it, uh, because for whatever reason, life hits you with a curveball, you deplete your cash savings, um, and now you need some more money, it's, it's a nice thing to be able to access uh, that you won't have that early withdrawal penalty uh, working against you. So good luck to you. And she ends here with a, a note saying that I'm a gay woman. I've not heard much from your show on the unique challenges that face same-sex marriages and finances. And she says, perhaps a future episode. I think that you were somehow like I don't know. I, I don't know what how what you call this. Is it like karma or like uh, just good juju that you put out there for me, Krista? Because I actually had Georgia Hussey on the show on the nineteenth, June nineteenth. Georgia Lee Hussey, who is the founder of Modernist Financial, she is a gay woman, and we talk a little bit about LGBTQ plus um, that community and like some of the financial, you know. I wouldn't say challenges, but just kind of um, complexities or uniqueness that is when you're gay and getting financial advice. The biggest is just to your point, there really doesn't feel like there is a lot of representation in that in the financial services industry um, in inclusiveness, which sometimes can, you know, like I like to work with people who like 
who I feel connected to, right? And so I think it's important for more representation in the industry and more voices in the industry to say, hey, like, you know, here we are, we have unique circumstances, let's talk about them, let's help each other out. I think that that's uh, what needs, partly what needs to happen. Um, But thank you for your question so much, Krista. I hope that it was helpful. Now, Anne, what are your plans this summer? When are you getting married, by the way? We're getting married in August. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, Tell me more. Tell me, you know, indulge me. What's going on with the wedding? (laughs) <laughs> it's a really tiny wedding. It's uh, our parents and our siblings um, on the Oregon coast. So beautiful spot. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. Well, wishing you a beautiful wedding and thank you so much for reaching out to me. I wish you all the best yeah. with your wedding plans, with your investing. You're always welcome back. So keep in touch. Thank you so much, Furnish. This is great. Have a great summer. Bye.